0: Well, I'm great to, grateful to see that that camera is gone. <laughs> only the people in the few front rows really get to appreciate my facial expressions. But uh, anyway, it's uh, great to see everybody here this morning. You know, have you ever invited a friend or a coworker or a family member to church only to hear them say, "If I showed up at church, the ceiling would cave in." Has anybody? Have you heard that? All right, now, the next time you will be prepared when you ask somebody and they say that to you, tell them this. By the same reasoning, you should avoid riding in automobiles because they're responsible for 20% of all fatal accidents in the United States. Well, whatever you do, don't stay at home because 17% of all accidents occur in the home. Also, avoid walking on streets or sidewalks because 14% of all accidents occur to pedestrians... Avoid travel by air, rail, or water, because 16% of all accidents involve these forms of transportation. Of the remaining 33%, 32% of all deaths occur in hospitals, and above all else, avoid hospitals. Amen to that. Hey. (laughs) Amen. You'll be amazed to learn that only one-tenth of one percent of all deaths occur during worship services in church and these are usually related to previous physical disorders therefore reasoning logic tells us that the safest place to be at any given point in time is at church very good also bible study is a safe place to be too surprisingly the percentage of deaths during bible study are even less unless of course you're having them in a home and you've either driven or walked to get there (laughs) I'm not sure, but I, but I think that, that the moral of the story is attend church and read your Bible, it could save your life. <laughs> and with that in mind, speaking of reading the Bible and our ongoing uh, study of the Gospel of Luke, we've come to a section of Scripture uh, that I refer to in our last message as plain talk or the sermon on the level. And if you turn with me to Luke chapter 6, verse 17, uh, We will refresh our memory, first of all, and then introduce a new topic uh, for today. Luke chapter 6, we'll start with verse 17 and uh, recap some of the things that we uh, discussed last time and then pick up a new topic. Verse 17, we read these words. And he descended with them and stood on a level place. And there was a great multitude of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the multitude were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. And turning his gaze on his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and criticize you or ostracize you and cast insults at you and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. And just as you want people to treat you, treat them in the same way. And if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you'll be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. In this passage, you may recall that Jesus leveled with his followers what it means to be a genuine disciple. To be a true possessor of eternal life, and, as opposed to those who merely profess such a possession. You know, in verse 20, he turned his gaze, if you'll notice, he turned his gaze on his disciples <clears throat> excuse me, and proceeded to rock their world, to shake up all their previous beliefs and describe characteristics which must be true of all God's people. Jesus teaches genuine disciples are those, if you'll recall, are those who receive the healing touch of Jesus. In verses 17 through 19, we see that people came to be healed, and they were not only healed physically, but more importantly and more eternally, they were healed of their of their ailment or their their illness before God, which is sin. For the wages of sin is death. The cause of all of our deaths is sin, and we're separated and alienated from God. So they came, and Jesus healed them physically so that they would recognize he had the power to forgive sin. All who come to Jesus in humility, a broken and contrite heart God will never despise or to cast out. Whoever seeks him shall surely find him, for he is not far from any one of us. And all who come to him, as we see here, they were coming to receive the healing touch of Jesus, trusting in Jesus Christ's death and the resurrection, and also in him and only him as Savior were touched and were healed by the healing touch of Christ. Also, genuine disciples are those who recognize their need before God in verses twenty and twenty one you 'll notice that he turned his gaze upon his disciples and began to teach them and If you recall, he dropped four h bombs uh, hydrogen bombs as it were on them, destroying the wrong ideas that they had believed up to that point. He had come to teach something new and something different, something drastically radically different than everything that they had heard up to that point in time. The first bomb that he dropped was that we need to be humble before God. God, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are the poor materially because they did not compromise their beliefs. You know, the book of Proverbs says that a good reputation is to be desired more so than gold or silver. That integrity and honesty and our reputation is to be more important to us than making an extra buck by doing something that's wrong before God. He's saying, blessed are you who understand that and live your life in a manner of integrity before God, who are concerned with your reputation as God's people at the expense of maybe making a couple of extra dollars He said, blessed are you who are poor physically because you have not compromised or sold out to the world system. But he also went on and said, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. You know, God's desire for all of humanity is that we walk humbly before our God. God's desire for all of humanity is that we turn from prideful self and self-sufficiency and recognize that the only way you will ever be forgiven by God is to recognize that you have a need. You will not work your way to heaven. You will not get there any other way than God's way. There is only one way to heaven. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father but through me. And you have to bend your knee to a holy and righteous God in order to be forgiven. You have to recognize your need for forgiveness. You have to recognize and understand that God's plan is the cross of Jesus Christ, the predetermined and and by the foreknowledge and predetermined plan of God, according to Acts 2, was the death of his son for the redemption of your sins and mine to all who believe. Have you humbly bowed your knee before God? Or are you still in a prideful condition that says, you know what, I don't have to do that. I'll just live a, quote, good life. Well, there is no such thing as a good life before God. The only thing good to God is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and the power of his resurrection. And only through him can we be healed of our sins. God says that those who recognize their need before God will come humbly before God. And Jesus reiterated that when he said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. He also said, blessed are you who hunger now. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for God. As David wrote, as the deer pants by the water's brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. Those who have a hunger and thirst for righteousness, right living, things that are right before God. God himself, the righteous one. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For what? You shall be satisfied. You shall be content. We live in a world that is discontent. We live in a world of malcontents. We live in a world where, you know, we think if we only have this next thing, then we'll we'll have contentment. Only to learn that we need something else, something new, something bigger, something better, something new and improved. Or until we see that somebody else has something that we don't have and go, man, I wish we had that too. You know, in the sin of coveting, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. We're guilty of sin before God. And God continually exposes that our greatest need is forgiveness. He continually exposes that none of us are righteous. He continually exposes that we all fall short of the standard of God. And that's why I say, the Bible says we all fall short of the glory of God. And that's the definition of sin, violating that standard. Material things, fame, fortune, feast. Jesus tells his disciples that, you know what, none of those things will satisfy. But hunger for him he says, hunger for me and you will be satisfied. Bomb number three that he, that he, that he threw before them was that general, genuine disciples are found hurting for those who don't know Christ and who suffer the self-inflicted wounds of a sinful life. We're to weep now for one day we shall laugh. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that one day every every tear will be wiped away and there will be no more pain and sorrow and agony and suffering. And he shall wipe away every tear. For those who hurt in this lifetime, we are comforted and we're confident of the promises of God that one day he'll wipe away every tear. The Apostle Paul put it all into great perspective, and it's been something that's been very helpful to me. But he says, you know what, I don't even consider the suffering of this lifetime even worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed. And I love that. And there's a guy who knew what it meant to suffer. Read, you know, in your Bible, 2 Corinthians 11 sometimes, how much this man suffered this side of eternity. And he said, you know what? It's just a speck on all the sands of the seashore compared to the glory that God is to reveal to each one of us. What a wonderful truth that is. And we'll talk a little bit more about being eternally minded or looking forward to the promises of God as we go through this section. And the fourth bomb was that he says, blessed are you when men hate you. That when you're hated for living to please God and ostracized and cast insults at you for doing what is right for the sake of the Son of Man. Boy, I'll tell you what. There's one thing that, you know, if if you could live your life over again, uh, if you really recognized and understood, if every young person would understand that we need to live to please God and not to please, quote, our friends. Now, if you stop and think about the people that we tried to please in our younger days, people that seemed so important to us, I just laugh at the foolishness of such a thought as you look back and you realize that people that in high school that live to please their friends, it's only a few years after high school that they never even see each other again. People that are in college that live to please their college roommates or to please, please their fraternity or sorority. And I think of the foolishness of that because it's not but a few years after college graduation and you move on with your life that it's just a vague or distant memory. And how important it seems at the time to live to please people. And what I learned from the word of God and from what Jesus is preaching here. And he tells us in plain talk and he gets right down on the level with us and says, Listen, if you want to live to please anybody, you live to please God. Because he is the only one at the end of the day that you and I will give an account to for our life. For those who reject Christ, you will go to the great white throne of God. You will stand before Jesus Christ and you'll be condemned for all of eternity for rejecting his sacrifice on your behalf. You will give an answer for the rejection of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and his resurrection. For those of us who have have humbled ourselves and gone to the cross and, and trusted in Christ and received God's forgiveness through the sacrifice of Christ and his resurrection. The Bible says that you and I, God's people, one day stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to be judged for sin because all of sin was judged on the cross on our behalf. But to be judged for those deeds that we have done subsequent to coming to faith in Christ. We will stand before the behemoth seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. And we will be judged for the works that we did for his sake. One day you and I will be rewarded for being insulted by men for standing for God. Isn't that a wonderful truth? That should get us through those times of ostracism and criticism and insults and recognize where Jesus says, you know what, be glad in that day and leap for joy. When was the last time you leapt for joy because you were criticized for taking a stand for Christ? Most of us walk away and we feel sorry for, oh, boo-hoo-hoo. You know, my friends, my family, my neighbors, whatever the, oh, they made fun of me. Oh, wow. Listen, you know, we're supposed to leap for joy. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great or much. Literally, it'll be huge. It'll be huge in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets, it's nothing new to be criticized or insulted for taking a stand for God and His righteousness. We're saying there are things that are right before God and there are things that are wrong before God. And if you choose to do wrong, you need to repent, turn from sin, for God will judge you one day. And there are things that are right. And even non-believers, unbelievers, those who have never come to faith in Christ, know inherently by the conscience that God's given us that there are some things that are inherently right and there are some things that are inherently wrong. And yet there are people who even would disavow that there is even a God. And yet their conscience tells them, well, then how do you know what's right and how do you know what's wrong? And they say, oh, but we just do. Well, how? Because we've been created in the image of our God. And though Adam sinned and turned and walked from God and all of us have, as a result are born with a birth defect called sin and that all of us have gone astray and wandered from God, we still have in, within us the image and likeness of God. He has given us a conscience to know the difference between right and wrong. Now, it doesn't mean we'll choose to do right. It just means that when we choose to do wrong, we're going to have a little battle that goes on until we can justify or rationalize why it is that we're going to do what we want to do. And as we go through this, what he's saying is genuine disciples are hated for living to please God and that we're to leap for joy in that day for one day our reward in heaven will be great. And it's a theme that he will continue throughout this sermon on the level. Now, while their spiritual, their spiritual landscape, I w- I'm sure, was still rocking from these four bombshell beatitudes that Jesus introduces, that, that, that he introduced to them, he introduces a whole new love ethic that will make the four prior bombshells appear as firecrackers as you look at this text. Because this teaching that he's about to unvi- unveil is so radical, and it was, it, it's as though it was a, a nuclear bomb has been detonated. And in fact, it's introduced to us in the contrast in verse 27. If you'll notice that, he says, But I say to you... Think about what he just said. Those who are insulted for his name's sake, those who are ostracized, those who are criticized for his name's sake, those who are poor, those who are hungry, those who are humble, those that are hurting uh, for those who don't know God. He's saying, you know what? But I say to you who have just been criticized, ostracized, insulted for his name's sake, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Love your enemies. He's saying, I say to you who hear. Man, you know when I read that and I went, wow, you know what? That's one thing that Jesus often warned about. He says, Let those who have ears hear. But not everyone who has ears hear. And the reason is very simple, because you know what? Those of us who have not trusted in Christ, those who have not gone to the cross, those who have not humbled themselves, the Bible says they are dead in their transgressions. They are dead. Now, the interesting thing about that is a corpse can't hear. A corpse can't see. A corpse can't smell. A corpse can't touch. And so Jesus is saying, you know, let those who hear. And I began to realize that, you know, what the only reason that any of us can hear God's voice is because God has revealed himself to us. He has revealed the identity of his son. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed to you the identity of Jesus Christ. Who am I? You are the Christ. You're the son of the living God, is what Peter said. Blessed are you because flesh and blood didn't reveal to you the identity of Jesus Christ, that he's your savior but my Father is who is in heaven. See, that's why salvation is all of God and not of our own efforts, because a corpse cannot do anything. A corpse cannot reach out to God. A corpse cannot cry out to God. The only reason you and I can cry out to God and seek His forgiveness is because He has awakened us through His Holy Spirit so that we can then recognize our need for forgiveness. Salvation is all of God and not any of it has anything to do with you or I or our efforts. He's saying, let those who hear. Well, who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples, those who have come to God and seek out God and said, hey, I'm looking for the Messiah. I'm looking for my Savior. Here he is before you. Receive him. Accept him. uh, Recognize who he is. He is as, as uh, Levi did, he had the big reception for Jesus, literally saying he received him into his home. Jesus, later in the book of Revelation, says, behold, I stand at the door of your life and I knock. And I knock at the door and anyone who hears my voice and opens themselves to me, I will come into him and I will fellowship with him. Have you heard the voice of God telling you to to repent of your sin. Have you heard the voice of God crying out, saying, Receive my Son as your Savior, His death on the cross, the power of His resurrection. Have you humbled yourself and received Him as Savior? If so, you're born again by the will of God, not by your own efforts. You have become alive to God and dead to sin. You now have ears that can hear. You have eyes that can see. You have a spiritual perception and understanding that you never had before. That's why, as a new believer, you read the Bible and go, Man, I read the Bible. I tried reading it my whole life, and none of it made sense. But now I I understand it. Why is that? Because Jesus said the Spirit, when He comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will remind you of the things of God. He will remind you of the teachings of Christ. He will teach you and guide you and, and, and help you to recognize and understand. And so Jesus is standing there before his disciples and he says to them, let him who, let those who hear, hear this and hear this well. Love your enemies. Boom! Love your enemies. Now, you know, I read this and I was convicted by this. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Boom! You thought it was tough the last things he was dropping on us it's like love your enemies i want you to understand the disciples did not love their enemies jesus as you recall at one point james and john the sons of thunder whenever people gave jesus a hard time it was not it wasn't you know long before they say hey lord shall we call down fire out of heaven Bam! You know, they were waiting for Messiah. They were waiting for their Savior. They were waiting for their Deliverer to come and basically just kick booty when it came to all of their enemies. And that's what they wanted. They longed for that. They longed for the day that the Savior would come and he would make right all the wrongs that they had experienced throughout the times of their nationhood. They wanted God to avenge their wrongful enemies. Even in the book of Revelation, the saints who are under the altar cry out before God, is it time for you to avenge us? And he said, not right now, just a little longer. There's a day coming where that will happen. But it wasn't the day that Jesus introduced because he said to them, I'm going to introduce something to you. In contrast to hating your enemies, I'm going to tell you, love your enemies. And as we go through this, the word love needs to be defined. Because I'm going, I'm looking for an out. <laughs> what, what, love your enemies. What does that mean? Well, you know, in the Greek, they had several different words. He, he wasn't commanding them to, to love them according to natural affections, which is storge love. He wasn't committing, commanding them to love them romantically, which was eros. He wasn't commanding them to love them as a friend or the love of friendship. He was commanding and demanding agape love. And such a love is not motivated by the merit of the one who is loved. The other loves come quite naturally. You can fall into eros love. You can fall into love. You can develop a love for a friend. You can develop a natural affection for a child or for a family member. But you cannot develop a natural affection, which is agape love, because it is a love that, is, that is, supersedes natural inclinations, and it often exists in spite of them. It is a love of volition. It is a love of choice. He's commanding us to love our, our enemies by choice. To choose to love those who you cannot stand. Saying, love your enemies. And if that doesn't penetrate our hearts, I don't know what will. To love our enemies. In this passage, we're going to examine three principles that we've got before us. The principle, first of all, is the first one is the principle of return. And we see that in verses 27 through 31. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And they notice there's three things that he talks about. Number one, to love your enemies means that you will do something that is an unnatural deed. Think about that for a moment. And a natural deed. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. I want you to stop for a moment and think about someone who hates you. You know they hate you. You know that they know that you know they hate you. Right? You know that. Here's what he's telling us to do. Now, you got that person pictured or people? Now, go do something nice for them. That's it. Go do something nice for them. We've got people that we work with who are not easy people to get along with. And I thought, you want me to what? What? You want me to do something nice for them? He's not saying ignore them. He's not saying don't do something evil in return to the evil that they do for you. He's saying go actively and initiate something good on their behalf. That's what he's saying to do. So that's what we're going to do, right? Right? I thought about that. There's a couple of guys, and I'm going to challenge my my partner in in our construction company. We're going to go and take these guys to lunch. We're going to do something for them. We're going to do something nice for them. I don't know. Maybe get them some tickets to a Ducks game or something like that, or, you know, maybe tickets for an Angel game. Um, But, uh, (laughs) oh, the season's over? Oh. (laughs) But it's the thought that counted. (laughs) But, you know, we're, we're going to do something nice for them. And and the reason we're going to do something nice for them is because that's exactly what the Word of God tells us to do. And that's what we're responsible to do. And I want to challenge you to do something nice for that person who hates you. And I want to hear something, I want to hear feedback from you. Because I'm just fascinated to see how when God's people are obedient to what God tells us to do, when it seems like foolishness to man. You know, God's ways aren't man's ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. As far as the heaven is above the earth, as far as God's thoughts are above ours. What makes no sense to you and I but is clearly revealed in Scripture, we have to have an attitude of humility and obedience. Lord, you know what? I don't understand this, but I'm going to do it because you say to do it. And I'm going to do something nice for that person who hates me, and I'm just going to trust you as to what you want to accomplish through it. It's not something I want to do. It's something I choose to do, which is agape love. I choose to do this in spite of the person because I don't believe the person is really worthy of my love. But the reality is is that God says to do it and choose to do it. That's what I'm telling you. That's what I'm commanding you to do, to love your enemies and do good for those who hate you. In addition to unnatural deeds, he also says to bless those who curse you natural words to bless those who curse you that's right we're to respond to verbal abuse with what the book of proverbs tells us with a gentle answer that turns away wrath we're to bless those who abuse us to bless those who curse us and not sarcastically you know what i'm talking about bless you too moron you know, not that. You know, what I'm talking about, you know, to choose to, to, to say a blessing to another person. To bless those who insult us. Will you do that? Unnatural prayers. To pray for those who mistreat you. I am convinced of this that you and I cannot pray for our enemies and still hate them at the same time. Unless you're praying for their demise. (laughs) Or you're praying for God's judgment. You know, the sword, the swift sword of vengeance, oh Lord. I'm talking about pray for them. To pray as Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. To pray as Stephen prayed, as he looked up into heaven, as he was being stoned by ungodly men forgive them. Don't hold this against them. Don't put this into their account. And what he's saying is, the essence of agape love is, you know, love doesn't take into account a wrong that's suffered. He's saying, don't put this in the negative account for things they will have to give an answer to. Father, forgive them and don't hold this against them. It's to choose to love those who we would not want to love. Are you willing to do that? See, the command to love our enemies is a call to unnatural deeds, unnatural words, and unnatural prayer. It's a command for supernatural love, which is agape love. And the question I have when you consider how difficult this will be for many of us, is there any hope for us? Can we really do such things? And as you'll see from this passage, we most certainly can Jesus continues in verses 29 through 31, and he says, Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. As we read through this, we recognize that he's talking about whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Now, obviously, there's a balance here as we go through scripture of defending ourselves to some point to try to make sure that we defend ourselves uh, when it comes along. But what he's talking about here is whoever, whoever slaps you on one cheek was, was a slap of insult. You may remember if you ever watched like the Civil War days or something that's passed in history where they'd take out a glove and they would slap a person on the cheek. And basically what they were doing is they were calling them out. They were saying, okay, you know what? Come on, I, I want a piece of you. You know, I don't care if it's a duel or if it's a sword fight or whatever it is, but I want you. I want a piece of you. Slap, and they slap them. And uh, you know, and, and what Jesus is saying is, you know what? When people insult you or they call you out, you know what? T- today the equivalent of it is uh, as we're driving down the freeway. All right, and wouldn't that be? That would be like our cultural equivalent again, slapped and called out. You know, the person who's driving alongside of you and you see them coming up fast and you know that they're trying to get in front of you and they're just kind of basically, you know, saying, hey, you know what, I I, I dare you to try to stop me. And the worst thing you can do in our freeway system is actually put your turn signal on because that's almost an indicator that, you know what, now you've laid your cards on the table. You know, this person wants off at the next off-ramp and, you know what, now that he's laid his cards on the table, he ain't getting off. Yeah, so, you know, it's that type of thing. So culturally, you need to understand, he's saying that he's not talking about somebody who comes to you and assaults you or attacks you. He's talking about somebody who just insults you, slaps you on the face and says, come on, I want want some of that. And to be able to take a step back. You know, I see it in sports all the time. First person that hits the other person, it's always the person who retaliates that gets caught. And so, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. To choose to not take that person on. What he's saying is, you know what, hey, listen, you know what, I'm not here to fight with you, I'm not here to argue with you, I'm not here to go one-on-one with you, I'm not here to be called out, you know, I'm not gonna, you're not going to egg me into this confrontation. And so what Jesus is saying, don't, don't let people, you know, encourage you, I- I invoke that type of response from you. You know, if you remember Cain and Abel, it was the same type of problem. Cain hated Abel because Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God. And because of that, Cain, you know, Cain had a hatred towards, he looked at Abel as his enemy. And God says, what's, what's your problem? He says, you've got hatred in your heart. And he's saying, you know what, you, you, must, you must control it. You must not allow that hatred to master you. Because if you respond or you react in a negative way, in a wrong way before God, you will be held accountable for what you do. How many times do you see it? Man wants to take vengeance or or retribution for something that's happened in life, only to find out that, you know what, their response to what has happened is greater than the deed that happened before, and then they are held accountable for what they choose to do. See, what Jesus is trying to get across to them is they had a misunderstanding where it says, whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And what what, what the common response of that day as it is today is this, if you hit me on the cheek, I will break your neck. Isn't that the way that we are? The law of retaliation. If you hit me on the cheek, I'll break your neck. If you steal something from me, I'll cut off your arm. And at least the Hebrew laws God introduced said, Look, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, you know, it, it, was, it was a law of, of, it wasn't retribution, it, wasn't, it was a, a, the law of justice. If you took this, then we take that. It wasn't if you slap me, I'll break your neck. If it wasn't you steal a loaf of bread from me, I'll kill you. It, was, it wasn't that. It was like, wait a minute. You know, we need to have a system of justice that's like that. We've got compensatory damage and then punitive damage. Punitive damage is, you know what? We just don't like you and we're going to kick you while you're down. It's just we, wanna, you know, we want more than we can get out of you. you. Yeah, you're going to compensate your victims, but we want more than that. We want to take it to the next level. At least God's justice system has, a, has fairness involved. But what he's telling them is, listen, you know what? Whoever hits you on the cheek, off from the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, don't withhold your shirt from them either. Now, he's not advocating a system if somebody comes and steals your clothes. You know, it's to give them everything that you've got so that we have a whole society of people who are running around naked and we have a whole society of people over here who, you know, their closets are full of stuff that they've taken from people. What he's getting across to him is this. We need to have an attitude where we're willing to give. We need to have an attitude that if God decides to take everything that He's given us, that we have an attitude like Job naked I came in, naked I'm going out, blessed be the name of the Lord, Lord you have given me everything that I have, if you choose to take it from me because you want it for whatever purpose, whether the purpose is for me to understand that my trust and hope is in you and not material things, whether you want to use everything that you've given to me at this point to be able to further your kingdom and your message to reach people for Christ, I don't know what it is that you want to do, but you know what, you gave it to me and you can take it away all I've ever been was a steward or a manager of your possessions and they're yours and you can do whatever you want with them what he's saying is don't get so hung up if somebody comes and they take something from you because at the end of the day it was God who had given it to us and it's God who allowed them to take it we need to have a heart of of an attitude of gratitude of a willingness to be able to sacrifice and surrender everything that we have you know I hear people all the time talking about well you lost your job you lost your business you lost your finances you lost your material possessions and then they go like this but praise God you have your health so now I look at him and say hey you know what what if you don't have that going for you then praise God we got God got milk pff, got God I mean that's what I'm talking about you know because at the end of the day that's what happened with Job wasn't that the test of Satan hey you hey Job loves you because look at the nice spread you, he's got you know, look at the wheel. look at the nice crib he has. Look at the the nice wheels that he's got. Look at the nice threads that he's wearing. And God said, "You know what? He didn't love me for any of that. Take it all from him, and you'll see that he still loves me." At the end of the day, he did love him. He continued to. Then Satan said what? Well, you know what? It's only because he's healthy. You take a man's health from him and he'll curse you. Watch this. And God said, fine. You can take his health. You just can't take his life. His life is in my hands. He took his health from him. And he struggled with that. And he had some difficulty with all of these things. But at the end of the day, he came to the conclusion, you know what, Lord? Even if you slay me, I'm still trusting in you. It's awesome. It's awesome. That's the message. This is what he's trying to get across. And that is this. Are you trusting in those things of life that are temporary and that are not eternal? Then you're foolish. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot hold to obtain that which he can never lose. And that's the message that he gave. He continues on. And he says, and just as you want people to treat you treat them in the same way. The golden rule. And the thing I love about the so-called golden rule is that there was never any teaching to that day that told people to actively do good for others as you want them to do good for you. The teaching of the day was if somebody does something nice for you, you do something nice for them. But Jesus radically said, listen, you go and you initiate How you would like people to treat you. You do it first. For God demonstrated his love for us and yet while we were still sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. God initiates love. God does for us. We love because he first loved us. Is it possible to do it? Listen to this example. After the collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1989, no person in all of East Germany was more despised than the former communist dictator by the name of Erich Honecker. He had been stripped of all of his offices. Even the Communist Party rejected him. He was kicked out of his villa. The new government refused him and his wife new housing. And the Honeckers at that point in their life were homeless and destitute. Enter the picture a pastor by the name of Homer he was a director of a Christian help center north of Berlin, and he was made aware of the Honecker Straits. Pastor Homer felt it would be wrong to give them a room meant for even needier people. So the pastor and his family decided to take the former dictator into their own home. What makes this even more remarkable is the fact that Eric Honecker, his wife Margot, had ruled the East German educational system for 26 years. And during the course of those 26 years, eight of the pastor's children had been turned down for higher education by this woman because she despised and could not stand Christians. The most hated man in Germany was invited to move in and live with this pastor and his wife. By the grace of God, The homers loved their enemy. They did them good. They blessed them. They prayed for them. They turned the other cheek. They gave their enemies their coat in this place, their home. And they did to the Hanukkahs what they would have wished the Hanukkahs had done to them when they came to them in their time of need. Is it possible to do those types of things? And the answer is absolutely. It is absolutely possible to do the supernatural because you and I who have come to trust in Christ can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. For God's love is poured out to his people in Romans 5. And his love is not only poured out to you and I who have trusted in Christ, but his love must also now be poured out through us to those who do not know him. It is a volitional choice. A choice made by the will and the spirit to say, I will do this because this is what my God requires of me and to do it. Next, Jesus shares the principle of what we'll call the principle of reward. And in verse 32, and if you love those who love you, What credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. I like the simplicity of this. Plain talk on the level. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. What he's saying is very simple. It's like, hey, you know what? There is no reward from God for natural love. Don't be patting yourself on the back for loving folks who love you. It's not hard to love people who love you. Don't be patting on yourselves on the back for giving to somebody in need because, you know, they give to you when you're in need. Don't be patting yourself on the back for loving people who love you, giving to people who give to you, or loaning to people who will repay you. There's no reward in heaven for any of that. That just comes with our earthly existence. He's saying what credit is that? It's very simple. There's no credit before God for any of that. He's saying, if you want credit from God, if you want to be rewarded by God one day, notice what he's saying is, but I say to you, in contrast to the way the world operates, I'm going to blow you up again with this one. There's a reward from God for those who love our enemies. There's a reward from God to those who give and don't expect anything in return. There's a reward from God when we go out of our way to help those around us, knowing that, you know what, the only reward or return that we'll ever get is the reward that we will get from God, who is not unjust as to see our works of righteousness that we do in his name, but one day he will reward us for that. You know what's interesting is, you know, when you when you when you look at this, notice what it's the, the principle of reward he says, and great is your reward. Your reward in verse 35 will be great. Literally, it'll be much. Literally, it'll be more than you could ever have imagined in your life. Your reward will be great. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. You know, the thing I love about the disciples is, you know, they they so much represent and reflect all of us. You know, the simple questions that are asked in Matthew 19, you know, here's Peter again. I love him. I'm glad Peter's in, in Scripture because I feel better about myself. Every every time I read something that Peter has to say. It's like, and then Peter answered and said to him, Behold, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the, sons of Man, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you will also sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. Notice that you're not giving up anything when you follow God. You think you're giving up stuff. You're not giving up anything compared to what he's going to return to you as he rewards us for being obedient. Literally, the word is much. I love C.S. Lewis as he responds to this. He says, you know, because people are always troubled by, well, what's your motivation? Is your motivation to get something from God? And the answer is very simple. There's nothing wrong with us looking forward to the promises of God, denying ourselves today, those things that God says, set those things aside, deny yourself, You know, take up your cross and follow me, because one day is coming where you will be rewarded greatly for whatever sacrifices you make on behalf of God and, and, and His sake. As you listen to these words from C.S. Lewis, think about what he has to say as, as it relates to rewards. He says, we must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary life. You know, it's kind of like you're only doing it because you're going to get something back. He says, there are different kinds of reward. There's the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it. And is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. Money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man mercenary if he marries a woman simply for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover, and he is not mercenary for desiring it. A general who fights well in order to get homage or recognition by his peers is a mercenary. A general who fights for victory is not, victory being the proper reward of battle, as marriage is the proper reward of love. He says the proper reward uh, reward are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they're given, but are the activity itself in consummation. What he's saying is that we are motivated to do those things that are right before God because we love God. And at the end of the day, we'll be like those who said, but Lord, wh- when did we see you hungry? When did we see you naked? When did we see you thirsty? When were you in prison? And because of the love that God's people have for God and he commands us to feed the hungry, feed those who are thirsty, clothe those who are naked, visit those who are in prison, we're motivated to do it because of our love for God and at the end of the day he will reward us and it's not even most of the time none of us even consciously have that thought in our mind. It's not like we're saying, you know what, I'm going to do this today because one day I'm going to get much in the kingdom of God. I can't remember the last time I ever thought that. I'm just grateful for these promises that I look at it and go, oh man, you know what, that's kind of a bonus. You know what it is, it's a, it's a genuine bonus. You know, Living the abundant life, doing what God has called you to do, doing the things He's gifted you to do, is fulfillment enough in Himself, and almost at the end of all of it, when we stand before the Lord, He's going to reward us on top of that? Oh, <laughs> Wow! That's a, gen- that's, that's a genuine bonus. How many of you worked in companies where you get a bonus one year and you expect it every year? It's like, well, gee, this isn't like the bonus I got last year. Okay, let's just define bonus. In addition to and above that, which you get every week or every two weeks or every month. I mean, it's just ridiculous when, you know, people start to believe that they should get a bonus based on no performance. It's like, hey, you know what, Company sales are down, profits are down, you know, we got a bonus because sales are up, profits are up, you got a share in that. And now, you know what, nobody ever gives it back. Think about it, you know, i never seen an athlete, you know, it says, you know what, had a bad year, I want to give some money back that's not what their contracts are based on. There's incentives if they do better to, to earn more and they may sign a lower base contract and have it heavily laden with incentives saying, I'm gonna, you know, I'm going to just go out and do the best I can and if I reach my incentives I'm going to get a bonus. But you never see, I mean you've never gone to the company that you work for and say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing that we're having a tough time. Take, t- just give me a 15% pay cut. It's like, you know, it just doesn't happen. And so when we look at this, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And to show how much I've, I've matured as I've walked with the Lord, I was going to start talking about like the grocery strike and stuff. And God said, don't go there, brother. So look at that. Those of you who are wondering if I'm maturing at all, you don't recognize how many things that I fight with that I don't even share. Hebrews 11. But faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. If you go down to verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward." Isn't that great? There is nothing wrong with setting aside temporary pleasures of this life in exchange for the reward that God is offering when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There is nothing wrong with sacrificing the temporal to gain the eternal for your reward will be great. If you go back to Luke 6, and on top of that, not only will our reward be great or much, but then you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. You know what he's saying is, for you will be sons of the Most High, the the phrase literally means, and you will be like God. We will never be God, but we can be like Him. We can be Christ-like, Stop and think about what he's saying. If you do good for those who do evil to you, if you do these things, unnatural deeds, bless those who who insult you, pray for those who, who persecute you, if you do those things, you will be like Jesus. And that's when we're salt and that's when we're light. Because as we do these deeds The Bible says in Matthew 5 As we do these good deeds They will glorify our Father Who is in heaven I don't understand you You're not like anybody I've ever met When you're insulted You don't cast insults in return When you're abused You don't seek retaliation You do good deeds for those who hate you You say nice things to those who insult you. You pray for those who despise you. See, when we do those things, we're like Jesus. See, because even God, notice what he says, is kind to ungrateful and evil men. The Bible says that God's sunshine shines on the just and the unjust. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. It's not like you and I as God's people walk around and, you know, the sun just shines on us and it doesn't shine on a dark world that's in alienation or an enmity of God. When we're like Jesus, God can draw people to the cross because he, the world sees a redeemed life. The world sees a man or a woman who has been born again, the world sees transformation. The world sees an angry and hostile person who now trusts in God and doesn't return evil for evil, who doesn't want to break someone's neck when they do them wrong. Not many years ago, I had a guy that we did some work for and the general contractor we were working for decided not to pay any of us. And the owner had sent him money to pay us. And I went to the owner and said, hey, we haven't been paid yet. And he said, well, I paid, you know, I paid the, the general contractor specifically for your scope of work. I said, well, I'm sorry, man, but he didn't pay us. And if you remember our conversation, I told you to make a joint check because, you know, I didn't trust this guy. And he didn't do it. And he goes, come here, jump in the car. And I jump in his new Mercedes. I go, where are we going? He goes, we're going to his office. And the whole way there, I'm like, listen, you know What? We we're gonna go to his office, but we're just gonna talk to him. You understand? And this guy was a crazy guy from New York, and 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 he was like, "I'll talk to him." And I said, "No, no, you don't understand. We're just gonna talk to him. You know, we're not. You're not gonna go there. You're not gonna grab him. You're not gonna do anything stupid. You know, I'm not gonna be involved in any of this. We'll go and talk to him, but don't." Be stupid because, you know what, what he did to us has nothing to do with what you're thinking about doing to him. You'll go to jail for a long time if you do what you're telling me you're going to do to him. And so fortunately, we got there, and, you know, I was able to reason with him. But at the end of the day, it was kind of like I was thinking, man, you know what, I wondered what he had done if I wouldn't have been with him. And see, and that's what we're to be as God's people. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Now, did I want paid? Absolutely. But the way to go about it wasn't the way that I would have gone about it back in the day. <laughs> Number three, we'll close with this. And that's the principle of relationship. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. And when I talk about relationship, in other words, a genuine child of God should bear resemblance to his father. You should be like your dad. You know, Romans 8 says, we cried, Abba, Daddy. God's people, we should be like our dad. You know, I'm going to ask you a question. If somebody said to you, you know what? You're just like your father. I'm getting a funny sense when I hear that phrase that it's not words of commendation. But how wonderful it would be if someone would say to you and I, you know what? You're just like your father who is in heaven. You're just like your dad Isn't that a wonderful compliment A wonderful blessing I pray one day That my children That people will say to them You know what You're just like your dad You have the same love for the Lord that he has You have the same love for the word of God that he has You have the same love for people that he had Even though he didn't like people He still chose to love them I don't think anybody really realizes that. You know what, man? I'm just like, people say, well, but you stand here, everybody. It's like, I'm just, you know, a couple people at a time, I can handle that. A whole bunch of people, it's just, I'm claustrophobic. I told you the MRI stories. (laughs) And and, and so it's kind of like, you know, but, but we choose to love people because God has commanded us to do so. Love one another just as I have loved you. And as I thought about that, I thought, what a wonderful compliment someday for people to look at you and me as God's children and say, you know what? That man or that woman was just like their dad. Kind, merciful to ungrateful and evil men. And if you do not believe that is true, let me close with these words. When Jesus came, he was the love of God incarnate. And if we're to understand this passage of what it means to love our enemies, we must understand the love that Jesus has for you and I. See, Jesus Christ is the love of God incarnate, meaning that we can see God's love demonstrated in the life of Christ. In John chapter 13, when you have some time, read the account that takes place of Jesus reaching out to Judas. He quotes a passage from 2 Samuel 15. In John chapter 13, he says, He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And in doing so, it was a reference to Ahithophel's uh, betrayal of David. And Ahithophel then went out and committed suicide. And what Jesus was saying was, do you remember the story of Ahithophel who betrayed his master David and then he went out and killed himself? And the story should have rung true not only with Judas, but all of his disciples. I remember that. Well, that's about, that's going to take place before your eyes. And the most kind and gracious act in that culture was for a man to dip a piece of bread into whatever it was they would dip and then offer it to a friend it was an act of love and friendship and he was saying to Judas remember Hithophil. he said remember how he betrayed David and remember how he ultimately killed himself don't forget that story In an act of love and mercy and friendship, he dipped it in and he handed it to him. And he was reaching out to his soul one last time. Repent of your sin. Don't do what you're going to do. And you will find mercy. But he didn't listen to him. And the account says, and it was night. And it was nighttime for the soul of Judas. It was eternal darkness from that moment forward. He rejected the mercy. He rejected the love of Jesus Christ, who warned him that he would become just like Ahithophel. He would betray his master, and he would later later kill himself. And that's exactly what Judas did. He rejected the love and the mercy of God. You know, and as I've thought about that, you say, well, Chuck, what does that have to do with Jesus commanding us to love our enemies? Well, it's simple. A new command I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Just as Jesus loved his enemy, Judas, he says, that's how I want you to love your enemies. Just as God loved his enemies, you and I. That's how He wants us to love our enemies. In Romans 5, we're told, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And finally, for if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son... How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? When you and I were enemies of God, Jesus Christ died for our sins. How should we love our enemies? Just like Jesus loved us. If we consider ourselves to be true followers of Christ, this love is our call. It is our command. We are to love our enemies... To choose to love them. Are there some whom you hate? And do you through some perverse twist imagine that your hate is justified? If so, you're in trouble, my friend. For Christ is not ruling your life. Are you doing good to those who hate you? Or are you doing evil? If Christ is ruling your heart you will do good. Are you blessing those who curse you? If not, Christ is not on the throne of your life. Are you praying for those who mistreat you? If so, you're just like Jesus. I believe the two greatest barometers of our spiritual condition are giving and forgiving. Are you generous with the things that God has trusted to you? Are you kind and forgiving? Be kind and gentle-hearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Love your enemies. Start it today. And may people see Jesus in our life. Father, thank you. This is tough stuff. These are, these are bombs that are going off in my heart. And God, I just pray that I will be obedient to what you require of me. That I will demonstrate that I'm truly born again. Jesus said, if you love me, you obey my commandments. They're clear. They're down on the level. They're in plain talk. Now may we walk a plain walk that demonstrates that we have ears to hear. Amen.